Well, I want to preface uh, what I'm about to say by the words, uh, I was given permission to say this. Okay, my wife gave me permission to say this. Have you ever stuck your, your foot in your mouth? Raise your hand if you've ever stuck your foot in your mouth. Okay, not literally, right? Figuratively. I hope you haven't literally stuck your foot in your mouth. Um, there are times in which we really, really mess up. We say something that is off color or attribute something wrongly or, or just say the wrong thing and, oh, just stuck our foot in our mouth. Well, my wife had one of those experiences, and she was gracious enough to let me use it as a sermon illustration. So let me tell you about it. She was a freshman in college at Biola back in 98, and she is at an orientation gathering with a large number of new freshman students. Now, my wife, being a uh, having an older sister who had gone to Biola, she knew all the tricks of the trade about the university. She knew what were the best teachers and which professors to avoid and what activities to get involved in and what activities to, to just lay aside. And, and so in her small group of freshmen, new freshmen that were being orientated to the campus, uh, they were beginning to discuss the ins and outs of Biola. What was good, what was bad. And uh, my wife, knowing, uh, having a sister who had gone there a few years back, she started to pontificate on the many things that, uh, that were good and bad about Biola. Well, one of the things that they started talking about was which professors to avoid. I mean, which professors are going to put you to sleep? They're either too hard or do they drown, drown on too long or they're just, they're just plain boring, right? And so she says, okay, whatever you do, my wife goes on to tell the, these freshman gals, whatever you do, don't take Dr. Pierce. Let me tell you, Dr. Pierce is probably the most boring Old Testament professor in the entire university. My sister took Dr. Pierce and she told me, whatever you do, don't take Dr. Pierce. Well, her small group of girls, a couple of them start to giggle a little bit. A couple of them start laughing and she kind of pauses a little bit and she turns to them and it's like, what's so funny? What's so funny? One of the girls looks at her and says, that's my dad. <laughs> it's okay, honey. We all do it. We all do it. Sticking your foot in your mouth. Wanting to absolutely die after a moment like that. We've all had those experiences. Friends, Peter, the Apostle Peter, had one of those experiences. Toward the middle part of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, the Apostle Peter was growing in his stature as the chief apostle among the twelve. Jesus had allocated special time for Peter, James, and John, and had singled out Peter as the leader among them. Soon enough, it was only natural for Peter to become more bold, more confident in his role as the lead disciple. Unfortunately for Peter, his confidence sometimes got the best of him. It was only a matter of time before he would stick his foot in his mouth. I want to read a story with you from Matthew 16 that will give a preface to what we're going to be looking today in 1 Peter. Look at Matthew 16 on the screen behind you, if you will. 
verses 21 to 27. Notice this very familiar story. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. 22. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord! This shall not happen to you. But He turned and said to Peter, Get behind Me, Satan. You are an offense to Me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Sticking your foot in your mouth. Peter had grown bold, had grown confident in his ability as a disciple of the Lord. And so when Jesus started to speak of His impending death and resurrection, the fact that the Messiah of all Israel would actually go to the cross, Peter didn't like that idea. And he went on to rebuke the God of all the universe. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus face to face? I'm sure the moment Peter did it, he began to second-guess what he had just done. And as if rebuking the God of all the universe wasn't enough, to have Jesus respond with the words, get behind me, Satan? That would certainly get your attention, wouldn't it? Peter was humiliated. He was brought to one of the lowest moments of his life. Yet Jesus, as He routinely does, uses this moment of humility to teach the great truths of God. And so I want to continue on in the story. Peter now, having stuck his foot in his mouth, is now about to hear some of the most precious teaching from Jesus. Teaching that I submit to you today is the groundwork, the framework, the foundation for what Peter goes on to write in his epistle to the churches in Asia Minor. What we're about to read, I submit to you, is the framework of what Peter writes in 1 Peter. Take a look at Jesus' words in chapter 16, verse 23. He says, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For for the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. Why do I bring up this teaching? I say again, I believe Jesus' words here, Jesus' teaching to Peter at this most humiliating moment of His life, serve as the framework, the viewpoint, if you will, to the epistle of First Peter. Jesus says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He goes on to say, 
when, when the Son of Man returns in the glory of His Father with His angels, He will reward each according to His works. Friends, Jesus' words in verses 24 to 27 of Matthew 16, these words are not concerned with salvation from hell. Jesus' response goes far beyond merely being justified by faith. Jesus wants Peter and the disciples to recognize that temporary sacrifice and suffering in this earthly life will store up for them a heavenly inheritance, reward and glory in the kingdom to come. This is so much greater than just justification. Justification is a wonderful aspect of our salvation. But Jesus says that in order to be saved, in a sense, to the uttermost, I want you to lose your life. That is, I want you to suffer. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to give up your rights and become my servant. That is receiving total salvation. Paul picks up on this theme in part in Romans chapter 8. Paul picks up on this theme of achieving final glory, achieving a total salvation experience. Notice what Paul says in Romans 8, 16-18. He says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Notice the condition. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we also may be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Here in Romans 8, Paul isn't speaking really of justification. He's speaking of a total salvation. Of a salvation of inheritance. A salvation that we seize and lay hold of. A salvation on the last day when Jesus looks upon you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. We need to widen our perspective of what we expect in the salvation experience. Peter in his epistle to the churches of Asia Minor sought to remind his persecuted Christian audience that their suffering and their sacrifice the loss, physical loss, and for some, physical loss of life, that they were experiencing on Christ's behalf, all of this was gaining for them a degree of eternal glory. A degree of eternal glory that would far outweigh their temporal pain and suffering. This glory would vindicate their faithfulness, exhibited in the most trying of times. They would soon be glorified with Christ in virtue of their love, and their commitment to their Lord. I want to refresh our minds briefly on some of the text from last week, as it will serve as a framework for what we're going to also see a little bit later on. Today, this study is in two parts. The title of my sermon is, is The Nature and Goal of Faith in First Peter. Now, that sounds like a seminary paper. I really didn't like that title, but I thought I needed to put something down that would give us a direction where we're headed. But really... This, this sermon today is in two parts. On the one hand, we need to establish what Peter is saying theologically. Peter is talking in lofty terms, and we need to break it down and understand where he's taking us from a theological perspective. 
But most importantly is the end. And that is the time in, in, our, in our sermon today in which we will say, what does that look like? What does that look like in real life? What are the truths that we've learned theologically? How do they play out in the day to day? Because ultimately the goal is not head knowledge, it's heart knowledge. And so bear with this time of theological understanding so that we can get to the time of practical understanding. Take a look at our text from last week, 1 Peter. We're going to start in verse 3 and go to verse 5. Notice what it says. Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved or kept in heaven for you, who are kept or guarded by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All right. I want to point out some things from these verses. First, notice behind, you, behind me that we have been born again to a living hope. Verse 3. A living hope. In the grammar of the Greek, this hope is likened to the inheritance of verse 4. They're equivalent. The living hope of verse 3 is also the inheritance of verse 4. Also, the living hope and the inheritance are equivalent with the salvation in verse 5. All three of these terms are used to signify the very same thing. The hope is the inheritance, which is the salvation. The question of the hour is, what is this salvation that Peter speaks of? What kind of salvation does Peter have in mind? By the word hope in verse 3, we can assume that this is a kind of salvation that has not yet occurred. It is something that we are still anticipating. Notice the words also in verse 4, that it is reserved or kept in heaven. That is to say, it has not been appropriated to us yet. It is a salvation we're still awaiting. And notice the final phrase in verse 5, that it is ready to be revealed in the last time. That is to say, we are still waiting for it. It has not yet been appropriated to us. What kind of salvation does Peter have in mind? Friends, I submit to you that the same salvation Peter speaks of at the onset of his epistle is precisely the same salvation that Jesus spoke of to him in Matthew 16. It's the kind of salvation that Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 18. The kind of salvation that Peter speaks of at the onset of his letter to the churches of Asia Minor is the opportunity for glory in the kingdom of God. The kind of salvation that Peter speaks of at the onset of his letter is the opportunity for kingdom glory. Kingdom glory. This salvation that Jesus, Peter, and Paul all speak of is bestowed upon us on the last day 
when Jesus Christ is revealed. We sometimes call this salvation glorification. Now, there are some components to glorification that we all receive. Among them, all of us, all believers, all of us who have expressed faith in Jesus Christ, we will receive new glorified bodies in the, in the coming kingdom. We will receive, we will be perfected morally. We will be made holy. We will be made like our Lord Jesus Christ. Moreover, all of us will receive fullness of knowledge. Paul speaks of the fact that we know in part, but soon we will have the kind of knowledge that Christ has. We will have fullness of knowledge. We will have holiness. We will have new and glorified bodies. All of these are components in the coming kingdom that will be the inheritance of every Christian in glorification. Yet, yet, there is an aspect. There is a component to the coming salvation glorification that is subjective. That is to say, it is contingent on what we do on this earth. Peter makes it clear in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we are all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in the body. Those who have been faithful to Jesus will receive reward and a greater measure of glory and honor in the kingdom. While those found lacking will receive a smaller measure of honor and praise. I refer you to the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 if you have questions about this. Jesus frequently attributed degrees of glory in the coming kingdom. Let it be very clear. When Peter refers to salvation in 1 Peter, he is not talking about the act of justification. Justification is an aspect of our salvation given to us the moment we believed. We are justified, saved eternally when we believe. But justification is only part of our total salvation package that God desires all of us to experience. In 1 Peter, when you see the word salvation, you should think in terms of kingdom glory. Now the question is how can we obtain How can we obtain this salvation glory? How can we achieve this hope, this inheritance, this glorification? Peter says it's on reserve in heaven, waiting for us to claim. Verse 5 indicates that God Himself is protecting this salvation by His very power. How do we obtain this salvation? You know, it's here that we might expect Peter to have a very long to-do list. After all, in all the major religions of the world, uh, there are many uh, works that need to be accomplished before someone can attain a certain level of, of glory, in a sense, in the coming world. But you see, the Christian, the Christian uh, Christianity, the God of the Bible, thinks on different terms. It's not a list of to-dos that get us glory in the kingdom. It's not a list of works that we might accomplish. Peter's not going to pontificate on the many acts of piety and service that we must render to God in order to be receiving glory in the kingdom. Peter instead chooses two words. He chooses two words to encapsulate what it takes to achieve salvation glory in the kingdom. 
In two words, Peter summarizes all that is necessary for the Lord to look upon you on the last day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Those two words are through faith. Through faith. Wait a minute, through faith? I thought you said it was through faith that we're justified. This is all so confusing. How is it possible that that we're justified through faith and we're receiving salvation glory through faith and yet it it is subjective, it is something that that is given to those who are of special significance in this earth in their relationship to Christ? Are we dealing with the same kind of understanding of faith in 1 Peter? If faith achieves justification, the question is, how does my faith also protect, or perhaps a better word, ensure my salvation glorification? And that was the question I asked at the end of last week's study. How does our faith protect, we might say ensure, our ability to receive glory in the coming kingdom. Well, let me work backwards. Let's work with what we already do know. First, we've established a couple things here. We've established this. One, we've established that salvation in 1 Peter refers to the believer's opportunity for glory in the kingdom. We've established that pretty clearly. I think it's unmistakable in 1 Peter that that's what it refers to. We've established something else. Secondly, we've established that Jesus gives eternal rewards based on how we live our earthly lives. That seems clear from Scripture. And so my question to you, to all of us, and it's a difficult one, my question is, if one and two are correct, which they are, if one and two are correct by the teaching of God's Word, then the word faith, in 1 Peter 1.5, cannot simply mean our faith in Jesus. I submit to you today that the word faith in 1 Peter and how Peter routinely uses the word faith in 1 Peter does not so much mean faith in Jesus as much as it means faithfulness to Jesus. Faithfulness to Jesus. Now immediately, some flags should go up in your mind. You should think, well, wait a minute. Shouldn't there be consistency in how we use this word? And I say, yes, there should be consistency. In fact, I shouldn't be making this statement unless I could substantiate it by the word of God. And that's precisely what I'd like to do. Very briefly, I want to demonstrate to all of us that when Peter uses the word faith, he means faithfulness. And that is not an anomaly in the Scriptures. In fact, it is used not a majority of the time, but it is used enough to substantiate that this is what Peter, in fact, is saying. Let's look at how faith is also used to describe faithfulness in the New Testament. When is faith used to describe faithfulness? We're dealing with the Greek noun here, pistis, for those of you who know the Greek. Notice this first. Jesus prayed in Luke 22.32 that Peter's faith would not fail, which is the equivalent of praying for Peter to remain, what? Faithful. 
At that time of that prayer, Jesus wasn't praying, Oh Lord, I pray that Peter's faith by which he was justified would not fail. No, that's not what his prayer was. What Jesus was praying for Peter was that his faith that had been established in the past would continue on in an expression of faithfulness on into the future. When Jesus used the word faith in this Luke 22 passage, what he meant by it, what the Gospel writer meant by it, was faithfulness. How about Galatians 5:22, Where you see the, the well-known fruit of the Spirit passage. Notice this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. That's the Greek word pistis. It should be translated faith. But yet everyone... That is to say, every English Bible translator, you're not going to find a Bible translation that translates that word as faith. They know what Paul meant by it. They know that Paul, when he mentioned that faith is a fruit of the Spirit, that he was indicating that it is faithfulness that is a quality that exudes from the Spirit of God through our lives. So this is another instance in which faith meant faithfulness. Finally, and I, I, I refer you back to the use in First Peter again and again and again. When Peter uses the word faith, he routinely uses the word to refer to being faithful. You're going to see it in verse 5. You're going to see it in verse 7. In verse 9. In chapter 5, verse 9. We're not going to cover all of these today, but I encourage you to look upon these passages on your own. He talks about faith in trials. He talks about being steadfast in faith. That is to say, being faithful. The evidence is clear. I've spent a lot of time on this issue because it, it, it's consumed me, really. Because normally this is not the case. I'll say very clearly. Normally, when the word faith is used, it is referring to faith in Jesus. Justification. But this is a minority instance in the Scriptures in which faith in First Peter with only one exception in verse 21 of chapter 1, means faithfulness. And that makes sense. Because we're talking about glory in the kingdom. We're not talking about justification. And that makes sense because we're talking about rewards in the kingdom. We're not talking about entrance into the kingdom. Peter's established the context. And so when we see the word faith, we need to pause and say, what does he mean by that? I submit to you today, he means Tested faith. He means faith in times of trial. He means faithfulness. And so, in returning to our passage, verses 3 to 5, we should now begin to see clearly the direction Peter is taking us. Let me read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, that is faithfulness, for salvation, that is kingdom glory, ready to be revealed in the last time. To finally answer this question, how does my faith protect or ensure my salvation glorification? It is by our faithfulness to God that we have the ability to receive a measure of glory in the kingdom to come.
What is the nature of faith in 1 Peter? What does it mean? It means faithfulness. What is the goal of faith in 1 Peter? Attaining glory in the kingdom. Okay. That was the theology component of our study today. Okay. We've gone through the theological aspect of 1 Peter. We've established the theological framework, the viewpoint that Peter is directing us toward. He wants us to be faithful that we might obtain glory in the kingdom. And he's writing to Christians who are exhibiting this even now. He's not writing to unbelievers. I realize that Peter wants us to achieve kingdom glory by means of faithfulness, but how can I prove myself faithful? How can I demonstrate my faithfulness toward God? Peter says our faith is demonstrated in times of trial. Notice verses 6 and 7 of 1 Peter. He says this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... If need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. Pay attention to that. What is Peter referring to? He's referring to the hope, the inheritance, the salvation of verses 3, 4, and 5. In this prospect of salvation glory, in the opportunity to receive glory in the kingdom, what do we do? We're joyful. That should be our response. Friends, we need to pause right here and consider... Am I anticipating glory in the kingdom? Am I rejoicing at the prospect, at the opportunity that Jesus Christ has given to me to have a measure of glory in the coming kingdom of God? Do I rejoice at that? Does that fill me up with joy? Or do we not even think about it? I venture to say some of us don't even think about it. There are certainly times in my life where it's the last thing on my mind, perhaps. Are you rejoicing at the opportunity that is sitting before you, a golden opportunity, to receive glory in the kingdom? In this, you greatly rejoice. The Christians in the churches of Asia Minor, Peter knew they were rejoicing. So he's using this present tense to indicate that this is epitomizing you, isn't it? You know that despite the persecution and the trials that you're about to enter, of which he's going to cite, despite these persecutions, you know what's laid up for you. You know what's in store, and you rejoice in this. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The word grieved there... Key word, it actually more specifically means pained. Literal, physically pained. They are experiencing pain. 
We are in the time of Emperor Nero. Peter is writing from Rome, perhaps right before or right after the time in which the persecution of Christians exponentially goes out the window. I mean, they become the most persecuted group on the face of the earth, along with the Jews. Peter knows that the times ahead of them are painful times, painful trials. But despite the pain, Peter says, you should rejoice. Despite the pain, you should rejoice. My father-in-law calls these paradox principles. They don't make sense. Normally, we wouldn't think of rejoicing in a time like that. We wouldn't think of having joy in a time of persecution and trial. Think of a trial you're dealing with right now. What is something you're battling in your life? For Casey and I, it's been the health of our son. Our son's been sick for a long time now. With uh, He's got acid reflux. And many of you have been praying for him, and we very much appreciate that. Last week, I was, uh, I was telling people I was more tired than I had ever been in years. Last Sunday, I was more tired than I had ever been in years because our son just is not sleeping through the night. That's our trial. It's not natural in those times of trial to think in terms of, wow, how I perform in the midst of this trial is going to achieve for me a measure of glory in the kingdom of God. That's not natural. That's not our natural way of thinking. Yet that's precisely what the Spirit of God within us is wanting to do in our human life. The Holy Spirit, who resides in you who believe in Jesus Christ, is trying to remind you day by day, that every trial you face is an opportunity. Every trial you face should remind you to be joyful at the prospect you have to be faithful in the midst of that trial. Instead, we get consumed with the trial and we get frustrated and we lash out. We get angry disappointed, discouraged, depressed. We react in a negative way. Woe is me. Oh, I shouldn't be dealing with this. No, just the opposite is the case. You should say, thank you, Lord. This is my chance. This is my chance to show you that I am faithful. That I will prove myself faithful to you. And in so doing, you will receive a measure of salvation and glory. Peter fully anticipates that his audience is a faithful, faithful audience. He expects that they will be receiving glory in the kingdom. And so he indicates that they are to rejoice, verse 6, despite the present experience of trials. Notice that phrase, the genuineness of your faith in verse 7. That's the same phrase that uh, Ray Lupinay preached on from James 1.3. Exact same phrase. The testing of your faith produces endurance. Peter and James have very similar mindsets here. James is referring to the perfection of faith. Though he doesn't explicitly state it, James is implying throughout the first chapter that if your faith is perfected, you will receive glory in the coming kingdom. Peter is no different, except he's making it explicit. He's saying if the testing of your faith if, if, you, if you make it through this, 
you will receive that glory. It's a process of testing. Peter likens it to the testing of gold. But he says the faith is so much more valuable than gold, the most precious of all the metals. The testing of gold yields a pure metal, unscathed by any unseemly blemish. But the testing of our faith, he goes on to say, yields praise, honor, and glory. How about that phrase, praise, honor, and glory? Uh, Peter's intentionally ambiguous here, isn't he? Uh, on the one hand, some of you probably naturally read this as praise, honor, and glory going to God because of our tested faith. Others of you probably naturally read this as praise, honor, and glory going to us in virtue of us having proved the test. Peter is perhaps intentionally ambiguous here. I tend to think that he's actually referring to the praise, honor, and glory that will be ours. That's the theme of verses 3 to 9. Why would he change in verse 7 to attributing this praise, honor, and glory to God? Instead, he's saying, if your faith stands the test of time, you will receive praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in, in so doing, you will be praising, honoring, and glorifying God. As we approach our final verses today, verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9 are, are going to be our final verses. Take note of the time references in Peter's writing. We are moving, if you will, from the resurrection of Jesus, verse 3, to the final revelation of Jesus, verses 5 and 7. From his first advent, if you will, to his second coming. And so it is only natural in lieu of the fact that Jesus has not yet returned, that Peter is going to, to speak to these churches of, of Asia Minor as if they are not presently with Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, At the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though you do not see him, excuse me, though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter twice refers to the fact that Jesus is not presently with the Christians of Asia Minor. They do not yet see Jesus because he is, his final revelation is still future. And yet he praises them for their love toward Christ. For their faith. Here again, that is to say their faithfulness. Their ongoing exhibition of faith toward Christ. That is what Peter is praising them for. Because of your love. Because of your faithfulness. Because of the testing and persecution you are now experiencing. You are are rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You are rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, knowing that Jesus on the last day is going to vindicate you. He's going to vindicate you. He's going to reward you. You've stored up treasure in heaven, and He's going to make good on that. You're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus is going to give you kingdom glory. 
And words cannot express, words cannot express the inheritance that will be given to those who show fidelity to Jesus Christ. Paul made mention of this, quoting from Isaiah. He said in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, As it is written, No eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Are you looking forward to this? The application for today is, is starts and ends with, are, are, you, are you rejoicing in this? Is this something that we as a church family, are we laying hold of salvation in such a way that we desire salvation and glory? Or are we content with our justification? Are we content with simply having fire insurance, if you will, from the fires of hell? Are we content in justification? Or do we want the total salvation package? Do you want the full experience of salvation, is the question today. And if you do, then what you need to do is be faithful. Faithful in times of trial. Faithful in the times of testing. Whatever you're going through today, it is not a burden. It is an opportunity. It is an opportunity. And we need to deem it as such. Application for today. I want to be very clear. First, faith in Jesus gives us eternal life. Make no mistake. That is the normal use of the word faith in the Greek New Testament. The vast majority of the time, we are referring to faith in Jesus. However, there are instances. Jesus uses it. Paul uses it. The author of Hebrews uses it in chapter 6, chapter 11. There are instances in which faith is defined as faithfulness. Faithfulness to Jesus is rewarded by, glor- rewarded by glory in the kingdom. Faith in Jesus gives us eternal life. Faithfulness to Jesus gives us glory. The total salvation package. Three, recognize that trials in life test our faithfulness to God. We are measured by our faithfulness in the midst of adversity. We're not measured by the good times. We're not measured by the easy times. We're measured by the times of trial. We're measured what we do in the face of adversity, and that is what First Peter is all about. That is why he's going to focus so much on suffering in this epistle. Four, rejoice that Jesus offers us glory in the kingdom. What a magnificent thing that is. And when trials come, be reminded that that is a golden opportunity to demonstrate your faithfulness. That is, a, that is the perfect opportunity, the perfect situation for you to turn to your Lord and say, Lord, I will deal with this in the power that you provide. I will battle this trial being faithful to you. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that I have to receive that that glory. That's what I want. I want to hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. May we be a church of Christians who are not content with justification, but who move on to total salvation. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, we rejoice in the prospect of achieving total salvation. You have given this to us as a gift. It is ready to be revealed. It is waiting in heaven for us to be appropriated to us at at the revelation of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We rejoice in that opportunity. How do we get it, Father? We've learned today that we get it by being faithful. It is faithfulness to You that affords us glory in the coming kingdom. I pray that each and every person in this room today would not only believe in Your Son for everlasting life, but that they would go on to lose their life so that they might save it, as Jesus says. To suffer on behalf of Christ that we might be glorified, as Paul says. To be faithful in the midst of trials, as Peter says. Father, help us to lay hold of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.